If you decided to listen to this week's message of Daxadeo Fichard Park, we know that Jesus has placed something on your heart. So let's dive in. Uh, with a new sermon series, and um, we're going to be preaching through the book of 1 John. So I want to invite you to open up your Bible so long, whether it's paperback, whether it's on a phone or whatever. I want you to open up your Bible uh, to the first letter of John. It's towards the end of the New Testament. And um, what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we are literally going to take one chapter every week. And we're going to be spending time in that chapter. Uh, We might focus on some key verses here and there. But we as a church family, we want to work through the book of 1 John together in our sermons uh, over the next few weeks, which is incredibly exciting. And every week, uh, we're going to start with something unique. So every week, we're going to start by reading what we're going to be preaching about out loud. So we're going to read the chapter that we're preaching on. So with that said, please Please welcome my friend Patrick to the stage. I'm going to ask him to join me. So what Patrick is going to do is he's going to read the first chapter for us, um, and then we are going to dive into the Word of God. He's single, ladies, just saying, so he has a nice, nice English voice. So I'm only kidding, but thanks, Patrick. It's fine. You at least did a proper job. Right. Okay, so I'm going to be reading for the ESV version, yeah? So it goes as follows. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched, with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was a father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may... No, sorry so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have written these things so that our our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. God is the light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Thanks, Patrick. Let's give him a hand. So it's a short chapter, 10 verses. It's a short book, five chapters, but it packs a punch. And um, what I want to do tonight, tonight is going to be very much an introduction. So I want to give you some context. I want to tell you about uh, the person who wrote this book, why he wrote the book, um, because this is going to help you as we go about spending time in this book over the next few weeks. It's going to help you understand. It's going to help you apply. It's going to help you recognize and see Jesus in the scripture. 
but whenever you approach scripture. So not necessarily only uh, when it comes to this letter of the first John, but when it comes to anything that you read in your Bible, I believe there are three really important questions that you need to ask when and before you start reading. Three questions that's gonna set you up for success in terms of understanding, interpreting, and applying, and seeing Jesus, because remember, that's why we read the Bible, it's to see Jesus. Three questions you need to ask yourself. The question of authorship, so who wrote this letter? Who wrote the letter? What do I know about this person? How can me knowing who wrote this letter help me in my understanding? Secondly, the question of audience. So to whom was this letter written to? You know, because it wasn't, you know, sent in the mailbox to you and me, right? It was packaged in a nice leather-bound Bible that we bought at Kum Books. But originally, the Bible was written to very specific people thousands of years ago. So ask yourself, who's the audience? Who received this letter? And then thirdly, ask yourself the question of agenda. Why was this letter written? Why did this author deem it necessary to, for this audience to write this specific letter? And what I want to do at the start of our sermon series together is I want to, with you, answer those three questions. Because if we answer those three questions, it's going to help you recognize and see Jesus as we spend time in the Word. So let's tackle the first one, the question of authorship. Who wrote this letter? Now, it might seem fairly obvious to you because it's called, you know, 1 John. So this letter was written by someone by the name of John. But now we need to ask ourselves, okay, which John? because it was possible that there may have been multiple Johns, right? So how do I know which John is taking responsibility in writing this letter? And he gives you clues if you didn't see it. He leaves you certain clues in the very opening verses that can help you recognize who it is writing this letter. Let's read it together again. From the start, it says, uh, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the, the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and proclaim that life to you. So immediately you can see this letter was written by someone that was an eyewitness of Jesus's life on earth. How do we know that? Because he's writing, I've seen it. I heard it. I touched it. When he says the word of life, he's referring to Jesus. So we can assume that whichever John this was, was an eyewitness to the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That then leads us that we can conclude this is John the disciple, John the apostle, John the one of the closest followers of Jesus. This is him writing this letter. And as soon as you know that, certain bells need to start ringing in your brain. Because remember, if, if that is the John that wrote this letter, then that means it is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, right? The fourth book in your New Testament. So it's the same John writing these two letters, and now extra bells should be going off in your brain. Why? Because what do we know about just how John wrote the Gospel of John? So the fourth book in your New Testament. It's a little different to the other Gospels. The Gospel of John is a little different to the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they tell the story of Jesus in a fairly chronological manner. You know, they start at the same place. They end at the same place. You know, they reference the same miracles a lot. Whereas John doesn't write like that. The other day I used the example, it's the difference between me telling a story and Yaku, our worship leader, telling a story, right? So when I tell you a story, it's fairly mundane, it's fairly boring, it's to the point, it's factual, it's not that colorful, it's quite to the point. But when Yaku tells you a story, he takes you on a journey, okay? He starts somewhere else with something that's, that might feel you know, completely irrelevant, but he knows it's very relevant to the story that he's telling. And then he maybe sidetracks to this point, you know, and he mentions something here, but then he goes on to this point. So Yaku takes you on a journey. He makes you feel what he's busy explaining to you. And that's kind of how John writes his letters. So you'll see as we spend time in this letter, John doesn't write like, let's say, Paul, for example. Paul was, you know, kind of the way I would kind of, you know, write or communicate, factual, to the point, you know, has a set order, start somewhere, body, conclusion, logical order to things. But John doesn't write like that. The way John writes, it's called meditative. So what that means is he, again, he takes you on a journey. So he kind of starts here with one point, He takes you to a second point. You know, he builds an extra layer, but then it almost feels as if he jumps to a completely separate point all of a sudden. And then after a few sentences, he goes back to this point because it aids in his explanation of this point. So it might seem that John is illogical, but he's not. What he's doing is he's taking you on a journey, layer for layer, and he's inviting you to peel it open as we go along. That's helpful, right? When you know who writes it and what we know about that person. Second question we need to ask is the question of audience. So who was this letter written to? So when it comes to audience, this is actually where, oh, sorry. I get too excited. So this is where a little bit of history actually goes a long way. So what history tells us is that John, the disciple, he lived in Ephesus for the last um, few years of his life. (laughs) Oh, there we go. Now it's out. Praise Jesus. So history tells us John, the disciple, he lived in Ephesus for the last years of his life. Now, when you hear Ephesus, you should be thinking, ah, the letter of Ephesians, right? The book of Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. What do we know about this church? Paul planted this church. On one of his missionary journeys, he established the church in Ephesus. But then this is what happens. And this is actually really radical. So after Paul, you know, this is like a lot of history, but this is going to help you in your understanding of the word. So after Paul plants the church in Ephesus and he leaves, you know, he goes on to uh, other missionary journeys, history tells us that the church in Ephesus started to struggle. They battled. They went through a really difficult time. Why? Because there was a massive falling away from the original gospel that Paul had preached to them. 
So some false doctrines, false beliefs had started to infiltrate the church in Ephesus. And I'm going to give you some detail about some of those false doctrines that crept up into the church. And it was wreaking havoc in the church. Christians were struggling. They didn't know what to believe because different groups were forming in church, different sects, different cults. Each cult had a different way of thinking a different way of doing. And then what happens is during the last years of his life, John moves to Ephesus, to this church. Why? Because he's an eyewitness. And get this, when he moves to this church in Ephesus, struggling, battling through different uh, false, weird beliefs, John at that stage is one of the only eyewitnesses left alive. All the other disciples had died. All of his friends had been killed, you know, for preaching the gospel. So John is an old man by this stage. So he decides, he hears the church is struggling. They believe weird things. He moves to this city, to Ephesus, to remind them, to help the church, to remind them as one of the last actual living eyewitnesses of Jesus let me tell you, let me tell you what real Christianity is about. That which I have seen, that which I have heard, that which I have touched and walked with and done life with myself, I knew this Jesus. I ate fish and bread with him. I saw him perform miracles. I was there when he was crucified. Remember, John was one of the only actual followers at the cross, at the crucifixion. Let me tell you, I was there. I saw him die and I saw him alive three days later. Let me tell you. I don't know about you, but when someone like that rocks up into town, I want to listen <laughs> to what he has to say. So that's the audience. He's writing to a church struggling. Now, I mentioned this church, um, a lot of weird, funky, false beliefs had started to creep in. And I'm going to name some of them. You don't have to remember this is not that important, but it helps you understand. Four different cults in one church. Four different cults in one city. Four different false teachings and followers, each with their own agenda, each with their own understanding of Christianity that's wrong. And John comes to help correct it. First cult or first uh, false uh, way that was busy wreaking havoc in the church, a group called the, the, the Docists. What? Yeah, the Docetists, sorry. These people um, had the belief that Jesus was not really human. So the person or the entity walking on earth, you know, that died and all of that, he was still just fully God all the time. He wasn't only, he wasn't really human. But this is really important because remember, if Jesus wasn't really human, then the gospel is powerless, right? Because the gospel is about real, authentic human beings being able to live in union with God. And it was made possible through Jesus becoming fully a human. And if he wasn't fully a human, then it means that all the scriptures that tell us that Jesus understands, he understands temptation, he understands suffering, he knows 
compassion. He understands what you're going through. If he was not really human, then all of those scriptures are false, useless to us. So this group was like, no, Jesus wasn't really human. The second group called the Gnostics. So this group, and you might know uh, some of, because I think there are still like people that carry around this way of thinking, but these were the people that thought Christianity is only for the elite. So they had this belief that knowing Jesus, Christianity, knowing God, was only for a select few individuals that by special revelation through some angel, you know, or some special dream or vision, you know, it's only made real to them and not average Joes like you and me. Third group called the Serenthians. So this group had the belief that Jesus had a dual personality. So sometimes he was Jesus the human being, but other times he was Jesus the God, okay? This is a problem, why? Because that means that if he had a split or dual personality, then Jesus could have, the moment he was crucified, just jumped into the God personality and felt no pain, right? Which would make his death quite useless. So this group had the belief, sometimes Jesus was human, sometimes he was God, and he would like kind of, like a person with a you know, split personality disorder, kind of jump between the two. And then the last one, the Antimonians, my favorite. This group had the belief that godliness does not matter. <laughs> so they had this thought that upon entering, you know, relationship with Jesus, you know, him becoming real in your heart, you can still do whatever you want. Woo, YOLO, right? It's all grace. It's all good. God forgives. Don't stress about it. Yes, you can still sleep around. Yes, you can still, you know, cuss your mother-in-law. Yes, you can still cheat your taxes. Yes, you can do whatever you want. Why? Because grace, woo! Sound familiar, right? Mmm, yeah. Don't mmm if it's you, but, or if you know people like that. But these were the people that didn't think that Christianity should have an outflow in your practical life. It was like faith in Jesus is one thing, and my practical personal life is a different thing. This is challenging, right? Imagine you're the only person left with an actual eyewitness account as to what's happened. And these are the types of people in this city and in this church that you need to engage with. Which leads us to the third question, agenda. So why did he write it? He writes, he comes in probably as an old man by this point, someone who has seen a lot, been through a lot, experienced a lot, and he sees these groups in this city, this church, and he goes, you know what? All of you think all these different things. Let me tell you, I've seen Jesus with my own eyes. I've heard his teaching with my own ears. I've seen him perform miracles right in front of me. I've done life with him for years. I have walked with him. All of you are trying to figure out what is Christianity about. Let me tell you what real Christianity is all about. And then he picks up his pen and he starts writing. That which was from the beginning. Let 
me tell you. And when you read this first chapter, you'll see that he uses one word a lot. He uses the word fellowship a lot. And I want to spend some time on that idea tonight. We're going to read the verses again, but I want to put a disclaimer out before we do that. I believe the word fellowship has unfortunately sometimes become quite cheap in church, right? So we're like, we fellowship over coffee. We fellowship in rugby. You know, we fellowship at Doxa Cafe. We fellowship by the ping pong table. And that's not wrong necessarily, but that is not the fellowship that John is writing about. It's a completely different fellowship that that he writes about, which we're going to discover together. So let's read together again from verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him, there's the word, and yet walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. I believe there are a few key things that we can take away just from these few verses. Number one, when it comes to what real Christianity is all about, because remember, that is why John is writing this. He's writing to educate them, tell them, let me tell you what real Christianity is about. And then he writes this. And I think the first thing that we can recognize is when it comes to real Christianity, real fellowship, real relationship with God, there is something about God that you need to know. And that is that he is in the light. He doesn't live in darkness What can we learn from that? That means that God, my brother, my sister, guess what? Is easy to find. He's not hidden away. He is not reserved for special, elite, educated, groot christene that went to Bible school all all their life or that know the Bible back to front. No, he is in the light. He's holy. He's pure. He's accessible. Anything that's in the light is easily accessible. (laughs) Anything that is in darkness is not easily accessible. So firstly, it shows us there's something about God that you need to know when it comes to what real Christianity is about. And it's the fact that he lives in the light. Secondly, there is something that you and I must refuse to do. And that is walking in darkness. (laughs) He says that if you say you have fellowship with God, who's in the light, but you yourself are actually still walking in darkness, then you're lying. You're lying to yourself about where you actually are when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, and you're lying to other people. So he says, real relationship, real fellowship, what Christianity is really about is about refusing to walk in darkness. What does that mean? What happens in the dark? Well, someone's like, what? Things that happen in the dark tend to destroy you and me, right? Sin, problems, addiction. So he's literally saying, if there is anything hidden about you, if there is anything secret about you and your relationship to God, then you're not actually having fellowship with him. 
Why? Because he's not in darkness. He's in the light. So he's saying God is in the light, refuse to walk in darkness. And then thirdly, obviously, there's something we must do, which is walk in the light. What does that mean? It means a realness. It means authenticity. It means who I am on a Sunday evening is the exact same person than who I am on a Friday evening or a Saturday evening or a Monday morning in traffic when someone, you know, and then you're like, ah. <laughs> He's saying living in the light means there's nothing secretive about you. There is nothing hidden when it comes to who you are and how you relate to God. He speaks about fellowship. He speaks about, and some of the translations, which I actually maybe even prefer, but some of the translations use the word abide. And that's actually a perfect word when you start talking about fellowship with God, relationship with God, it's the word abiding. And John loved writing about the concept or the word of abiding. I'm reminded of John 15, verse four to five, where Jesus says, abide in me. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that word in a second, but he's saying, have fellowship with me, live in relationship with me, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. I'll have fellowship with you. I'll have relationship with you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. What does it mean to abide? Quick educational moment. So the Greek definition of the word abide literally means to, to tarry. I'm going to give you an example in a second, but the Afrikaans is even better. In Afrikaans, it literally means om te keir. Isn't that crazy? To abide means a keir metisis. To, to tarry, it's literally that idea of when, you, when you're walking with someone, and you're not in a rush. You're strolling, having conversation, enjoying each other's company. It means to sojourn, to tarry along. I spend time with you. We're not, you know, in a rush to get to things or to do things. But if I tarry with someone, it speaks of a continual, intentional closeness. In Afrikaans, it's om te keir. Isn't that great? <laughs> I love that. Some of the other definitions that you get if you look up this word, it means to not depart, to continually be present, to be held. Isn't that cool? So to abide. When Jesus throws out the invitation, he says, abide in me, have fellowship with me. The, the idea of fellowship that John writes about in this first letter of John it means to, to tarry with Jesus, to continually be present with him. It is day to day, day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, togetherness. That's fellowship. 
It's day-to-day contact. means to persist. I persist in my faith. I persist in my surrender to God. I persist in my obedience when he speaks to me and he reveals things to me. That's fellowship with God. Can you see why this is so important? Because you can be in in relationship with God, but have zero fellowship with him. It's very possible. You can have Jesus in your heart. You can have had that moment of salvation, and yet you can have zero fellowship with him. And here John takes a second and he writes what real Christianity about. It's not even that moment where you go from death to life, from darkness to light. That's great. And that has to happen. But what it's really about is the fellowship. So when someone asks you, or if if someone maybe asks me, Aiden, how's it going with your marriage? Wrong question. Because yes, I'm still married. If that's what you're asking, right? How's it going with your marriage? Yes, still married. Thanks, shop. But that's not what you're really wondering about, right? You're not really wondering, am I still married or not? What you're wondering about is, Aiden, how's it going with your intimacy in your marriage? And that's the question John is asking in this first chapter. He's not asking whether or not you know Jesus. He's asking, how's it going with your intimacy with Jesus? How's it going with your abiding? Fellowship. The second element of fellowship, and I'm going to start closing with this. The second element of fellowship that he writes about is this idea of fellowship with each other. So again in verse 7 he says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Isn't that crazy? So in this first chapter, John writes about the idea of fellowship with God and fellowship with people so interchangeably that guess what? We can conclude one is not possible without the other. I'm going to be very honest for a second. There is a wretched, sinful, straight from the pit of hell belief out there in the world that you can have individualistic faith. And it's a lie from Satan himself. So what am I not saying? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have personal, you know, one-on-one with Jesus. That is crucial. But here's the thing. If your fellowship with God is not leading into fellowship with people, then you're not having fellowship with God. (laughs) If your fellowship with people is not leading you into more fellowship with God, that's also not fellowship. It's just rugby or just coffee, or just the bride, but it's not fellowship. How is that possible? Because the things of God, right? Who he is, how he goes about, you know, the plan of salvation and relationship with you, all of that only ever becomes real in relation to people. Let me give you an example. If you're alone on a mountain forever, right? And on this mountaintop, you experience Jesus and God speak to you about forgiveness, you know, and grace and mercy. It's really cool, but it's all intellectual, right? But when you live at the bottom of the mountain, where people actually live and go about their lives, 
and someone wrongs you, then forgiveness gets real. Then mercy gets real. Then grace becomes real. Then having compassion gets real. So if I'm only ever experiencing God by myself on a mountaintop, which you should do, but if I don't leave the mountaintop and go to where the people are at the bottom of the mountain, it's not real fellowship. It's all up here. The things of God, they find their expression. They find their realness in relation to people. And that's the first chapter. Fellowship. It's great, right? (laughs) So good. (laughs) So later on in the book of John, he gets even into the nitty gritties. He talks about sin. And if you've ever been confused about that verse that says, if you continue to sin, you don't know Jesus, then you're in good company because we're going to preach about that. But this first chapter, it's all about fellowship. So in this chapter, I'm going to invite the worship team to join me as we end off our time together. But in this first chapter, the question that John is asking, remember to who is he writing? He's writing to people that are confused. (laughs) He's writing to people that have come, uh, that have become, you know, confused about what is real Christianity about. And the very first question he asks them, how's it going with your abiding? Isn't it great? He doesn't come in in the very first chapter and he's like, listen, all you ridiculous pagans and heathens, you false idol worshipers, you know, God's judgment be upon you. Let me educate you. Let me lay down the law. No, no, no. He doesn't do that. He comes in and he asks, my brother, my sister, how's it going with your tarrying with Jesus? Because that is where deception creeps in. It's when I stop tarrying with Jesus, when I stop that day-to-day faithful contact with him. So how do I know? How do I know if I'm abiding? How do I know if I'm actually succeeding or not when it comes to this idea of walking with Jesus? John gives you a clue at the very start of the letter. He gives you a clue as to how will you know if you need to answer the question, how's it going with your abiding? How's it going with your relationship? How's it going with your intimacy? He gives you a clue as to something that you can look at that will help you determine if I'm busy tarrying or not. And he says in verse 4, I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete. How is your joy doing? That's a good question to ask, right? Because what happens when I tarry with Jesus? What happens when I fellowship with Him? What happens when I abide in Him and He abides in me? One of the very first fruits joy not joy as in whoa we won the rugby game that's happiness it'll come and it'll go it's not as in whoa this month i made budget whoa no 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 that's happiness it comes and it goes joy 
something very different. Joy is persistent. It's constant. It's stable. Why? Because joy is not dependent on what happens. Joy comes from in me. Joy is not something that comes from out of me. It comes from inside of me. Can I ask you to stand? My question to you tonight, how is it going with your abiding? How is it going with your tarrying with Jesus? Hoe gaan dit met jou keier met die Heere? Do you have joy, my brother, my sister? One of the very first fruits of abiding, it's joy. Joy in the face of no matter what. Joy in the face of no matter the petrol price. Joy in the face of no matter what happens. Joy in the face of no matter the prognosis for my health. Joy in the face of no matter what goes wrong in my life. Why? I abide in Jesus. That's the first chapter. Fellowship. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with each other. If you want to respond and say, God, I want to fellowship with you. I want to abide more because that is something that can grow or shrink. The fact that I'm married will never change, okay? I have the legal documentation to prove it, but the level of joy and intimacy that I experience in my marriage, that can change. And if you tonight with me want to say, Father, I want to abide more. And so it's not working more. It's not proving myself more. It's not struggling more and slaving away more. No, 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 no. It's abiding. It's caring. It's fellowship with God. If you want to say yes to that, I want to pray with you tonight. I'll be the first one to put up my hand. So if you want to put up your hand with me so that we can pray together, that would be great. Can I invite you? So the, the arm that's not in the air, maybe put that on your friend next to you. And let's pray together. Pray together for your friend and for yourself. God, I want to abide. Jesus, this is our prayer tonight. As a church family, we want to abide more. We want to fellowship more. We want to tarry more. Yara, ons wil meer met die keier. Ons wil saam met die stap. I want to journey with you, Jesus. I want to linger in your presence. I want to walk with you. I want to have day-to-day contact with you. I don't want to rush. I don't want to be distracted. I want to hear your voice. I want to laugh with you. I want to weep with you. I want to experience real, authentic relationship with you, Jesus. And Father, we pray together as a church family, as we embark on this book in the next few weeks, Father, that the prize, the prize for us as your children at the end of the day would be a greater sense of abiding, a greater sense of fellowship with you and a greater sense of fellowship with each other. We pray that together in Jesus' name. What a message. 
If you feel that someone would benefit from this, share it with them. We are all about family on mission.